Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am super excited to have Hunter Schultz back on our podcast. He is an amazing wealth of knowledge regarding um, a lot of things in healthcare. Um, today, what we're going to be talking about is privacy. So for many years, we have, I mean, like always, I mean, Privacy is something that's very, very important in medicine for thousands and thousands of years, as important as the Hippocratic Oath. And we've just always thought that as patients, what we talk to our healthcare providers about is private. Well, is it really private anymore? Um, there's a lot of things that have happened over the last 70 years in medicine that have really decreased our privacy in medicine. And we're going to get into that today. And And believe me, it's not Everybody should be worried about this. Um, you know, some people only are worried about it when something happens to them um, because their privacy is is uh, taken away. But um, mind you that even if you don't know about it, your privacy, your medical privacy might have already been taken away. So um, without further ado, Hunter, welcome to our show. Sean, thanks for having me back. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the history of of privacy in medicine and and how that has changed over the last 70 years well you 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 touched on it being a few thousand years old in the hippocratic oath which most people know the first do no harm but within the oath is what you tell your doctor remains with your doctor and it was put there for good reason if you can't trust your physician to keep your confidence you're not going to tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth, which affects diagnosis and treatment plans. So it's been around a lot longer than even the attorney-client privilege. And if you ask any lawyer what happens to uh, the, the legal profession if you lose attorney-client privilege, they'll tell you that's the end of the profession. You're, you're hamstrung. And I'll give you a good suggestion for a guest. That would be Dr. Craig Wax, who wrote a great article called Legal Care for All. <laughs> he opened up a few doors. It was a tongue-in-cheek article. But hey, you know, Miranda writes, you have the right to an attorney. And if you can't afford one, one will be appointed uh, for you. Opens up some interesting conversations in terms of comparing it to Medicare for All and uh, client-patient privacy. So fast forward a bit to... Uh, the 1990s when HIPAA was uh, introduced and before that and, and, and up until that point, doctors and, and hospitals, hospitals mostly were getting into electronic health records by that time uh, in their rudimentary form. And then HIPAA came along and cracked open the door to patient privacy. It allowed a lot of people in. And the P in HIPAA doesn't stand for privacy. It, it stands for uh, uh, portability. So you can take your insurance with you, or you, it was easier for you to get coverage uh, if you left your job, since most insurance is tied to employment. And it's amazing. We could have prevented that whole, that whole deal if we'd just done, just done uh, uh, health savings accounts the right way and opened them up to uh, uh, paying direct. But it was a little early for that because that's really when direct primary care was getting underway. Back in the, the early, mid to late 90s is when it started. And 
Then along comes uh, 2005, 2006, when Medicare and the U.S. government said to all primary care doctors, guess what? If you want to get reimbursed, (laughs) you need to have electronic health record system in your office. Which brings up the subject of how do you audit Medicare payments? Well, and you've got to audit them. I mean, there's got to be an audit mechanism. You're spending taxpayer money. So what happens? They send in usually a registered nurse, and it was an accountable care organization that would do that. They'd send in a registered nurse who'd sit down at the the software program, the desk, and have access to all the patient records, including non-Medicare patients. So it raised a lot of questions. And then you had the Affordable Care Act, which didn't help. It uh, facilitated more access. And if you look at, uh, there is a ruling, uh, or it's in the Federal Register as of December 2016, that the federal government in the form of CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, they have access and unfettered access. And they say they're doing surveillance of electronic health records without patient authorization. That wording is in the Federal Register. That's really never seen a courtroom. That was approved by the Office of Civil Rights. And I thought, I read that and I thought, wow, the Office of Civil Rights. I wonder, what's that? <laughs> is that in the Supreme Court? I mean, is that, is that the who? I mean, who, who, who is it? Well, it turns out that every every department in the government has an office of civil rights, apparently, and so does the Department of Health and Human Services. Guess who approved it? (laughs) The Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Health and Human Services, which is essentially like the wolves guarding the hen house and asking themselves, is it okay? (laughs) Just only a government could come up with that. But that's how they are. uh, That's when I when I say. The old, antiquated, uh, the old antiquated and radioactive system, what I'm referring to is the current healthcare system. And the radioactive part of it, you can measure the fallout. The fallout is on the Department of Health and Human Services breach portal. So if you have a database of, pa- of healthcare patients, over 500, and you have a breach, you have to report it. So they conveniently monitor the fallout from their own misadventures and doing spying on healthcare records. And you can go online and look. And it's not fun to do that. I mean, it's it's interesting, but it's not fun. It's discouraging when you see yeah. breaches. And it's breaches can be determined. It can be uh it could be losing a laptop. It could be uh a hacking. It could be ransomware. And it, it, it's it's a it's an insidious uh situation that we have now. And it's a threat to people, especially to people who don't give privacy uh, a second thought. Oh, I don't, I don't have anything to worry about. My, you know, I don't care if someone sees my record. Yeah, well, that's fine for you. But what about people who've, who've had rapes, abortions, adoptions, mental illness, drug addictions, you name it. Uh, spring break's gone wild on Mars. Yes. <laughs> and... It winds up on the internet. You probably have friends that have told you things in confidence because they don't want to tell their mom or dad, lest they go ballistic. So it's it's a it's an insidious situation that needs to be addressed. And while there's 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 
bad news on that front, we can get to the good news that there are some disruptors out there. But uh, this has been a long, slow motion train wreck. And it's not been helped by what people consider to be the privacy, you know, the HIPAA. When they now you you think of medical privacy, you think of HIPAA. That just cracked open the doors. You've got two and a half million entities that have access to what they call uh, anonymized personal health information, except it can be re-identified, and that's been proven. So, uh, what what are we doing here? We have to have this conversation or we are going to lose medicine as a profession. It just can't, you can't, uh, you can't have good diagnosis and treatment plans if you're not getting the right information as a physician. Well, and I think one thing over the last two or three years, the system has really been exposed. I mean, people's medical privacy has been violated over and over again, you know, by making you know, things public, whether it be through your employer or whether it be, um, you know, through many other means. And, you know, it used to just not be that way. And so I think now, unfortunately, kind of like you're saying, or maybe you didn't say this, maybe we're talking about this before the show, but um, people are going to be fearful to maybe talk about things they really need to talk about or want to talk about with their doctor because they're worried about privacy issues. What happens? I mean, the knock-on effect from that is horrible. And it even extends into uh, your profession. Because if you're an attorney, and if I think like an attorney, a pit bull, <laughs> and I have a client who either died or is, you know, from, died from a misdiagnosis because, the, you know, the client didn't say uh, uh, everything that was going on, and they're prescribed uh, a medication and, and uh, prescriptions are like a third of all malpractice claims. So I think it's a third, but it's yeah. a major player in, in malpractice claims, getting the wrong, uh, being prescribed the wrong drug. So if the patient dies, no one knows, they can't admit it in court that, oh, well, yeah, I kind of neglected that I do cocaine every now and then. <laughs> you know? Right. No, not with that medication, right? Right. And so who's going to get the blame? the doctor. And perhaps if I'm an attorney, I'm going to loop in the pharmacist too, because I know you got malpractice insurance. Yep. Good. You'll settle out of court. Your insurance company will settle out of court. You may not like that, but you know, Hey, it's up to them. They're playing the claim. What happens to your, you know, what happens to malpractice insurance cost? Right. It's going up. Interestingly enough, malpractice claims go down with the improvement of the doctor-patient relationship. Well, I know I've sat in on um, meetings before where they talk about what do they call them in in big organizations risk um, risk management, mm -hmm. and the number one reason for being sued is not because the doctor did something wrong; it's because the patient didn't like the doctor and didn't like the way they were treated, and and one of the problems with medicine now is that patients don't have a good relationship with their doctors anymore. Now that we're going to talk about some fixes, you're going to talk about that because it doesn't have to be that way. But unfortunately, that's the case in a lot of instances now. So um, it raises the the uh, liability of practicing medicine because you don't have a good relationship with the patient. 
And you also don't, yeah, the, the doctor-patient relationship, if it's done right and, and, and correct, it means that, you know, you're on a first-name basis. Yeah. You, you don't sue your friends. Very rarely do friends sue friends. You have to be a complete, you've got to be a, a complete page turner, chapter turner of a friend to go from, you know, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to sue you. Let's work this out to, oh, hell no, I'm calling the pit bull. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, and I'll give you a personal, I'll give you a personal um, story about that. My dad uh, had my, multiple myeloma. This is back in the, the early 80s, he was diagnosed. And he did not go to his normal doctor. And he went to another doctor who thought it was, he was having uh, pain in his wrists. And he was a writer, so he chalked it up to like cor corporal tunnel syndrome or something. And the doctor uh, diagnosed it as arthritis. Well, when the pain hit his, his lower back, I, I got him to the hospital and he was diagnosed then with multiple myeloma. Now that doctor came in, the, the, the one who misdiagnosed, it, misdiagnosed him came in and was so apologetic. And what, it happened to be the doctor of my dad's best friend. So there was some relationship there, mm -hmm. right? And, and my dad said, you know, doc, who am I not to make mistakes? And he forgave him. Yeah. And, and that doctor probably walked out of that room going, wow, there's, there's humanity. You know? yeah. And that was the early, that was like 1980, 81. So yeah, if you get the relationship right, which means you need time with the patient, Number one, if you don't have time with the patient, you're never going to establish the relationship. And you're more, in order to do that, you have to have the right business mechanism, uh, business model. And guess what? <laughs> There's only <laughs> one that really enables it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And traditional medicine, the way it's, it's driven by insurance companies is not the model. No, it can't possibly be the model, nor can Medicare for all. If I call the old, the current, the current system that we have now, I call it the old antiquated and radioactive system. Well, Medicare for all would be the equivalent of diving into the deep end of Chernobyl, sucking on a plutonium lollipop. It's already in the Federal Register. It says they're doing surveillance of electronic health records, quote, without patient authorization. Guess what? Question for the Medicare for all people. How are you going to audit Medicare for all? Do you think the GAO is going to go, eh, no, we don't need to audit that. $3 trillion, $4 trillion, and they're not going to audit it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, Bullwinkle? I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so I think uh, to, to boil it down, privacy is probably the, the if you'd asked me three years ago, Sean, what, what I thought was the, the most important issue I would have said primary care, direct primary care, because primary care is the foundation of all care. If you don't get that right, you can forget it. You know, you're wasting time, money, and you're killing people, literally. And after the, and, and the component within direct primary care, of course, is privacy. So I do, I, you loop it in through that, but I think now we're at a point where Privacy has got to be the, the number one issue. That's my biggest fear. 
I see that as the biggest threat to medicine. Now, that's my personal opinion, but there are a lot of people out there who, who have written books about it. Uh, Twyla Brays wrote Big Brother in the Exam Room, good book. It's a deep dive. It's not, uh, it's not for someone who wants an evening read, but if you want the full story starting with, with HIPAA, uh, there's your reference book. And I had her on my old healthcare show. So uh, I learned a lot from that. And there's another little uh, factoid that I, I've put in uh, a number of my articles and, and in my book. Um, a former director, well, he, was at the, he was the current director of the, the National Security Agency. That was Admiral Michael Rogers. He did a, a talk at the Cleveland Clinic. And in that talk, he speaks of Medical, uh, medical databases has been the, essentially the mother love. There's more personal identifying information in those databases than anywhere else. And we need to be a lot more uh, uh, proactive about that. And I can certainly send you the link. You can put it in the description for people to see, but it's, it is a real eye-opener. And the, quite, the Q&A afterwards is very interesting too. And that was in 2000, I think it was 2016 that he did that. So if anyone's going to know, it's going to be the director of the NSA, what are some of the biggest threats right. to us? And if you're an enemy of the United States, <clears throat> Putin, hmm, uh, how, would you, how, would you, how would you bring down the U.S.? Well, <laughs> Japan and Osama learned the hard way that a direct attack on the U.S. is probably not the way to do it. The way to do it is what the Soviets did during the Vietnam War, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You, the more FUD you create and, and angst you create within uh, American society, conversations, media, education, the more of that that you can, you can roil us up, so to speak, you're, you're weakening us. And imagine Medicare for All as a database. I give you the world's most hunted database. I mean, if you look really? at it from strictly a hacker's, a hacker's yeah. dream, uh, that would be it. Right now, you have a, what's called the silo effect. You have a lot of databases, right? So they're each little silos. It's kind of... Yeah, the big, the big healthcare systems are easy targets. Yeah. But Medicare for all, it's one target, essentially. Well, it's, it's, it's a reminder when the government gets involved in things, this, this is what happens. And they make it sound all, you know, for the greater good. And it's good for everybody. But like you say, in reality, having a bunch of silo systems kind of like having a bunch of independent doctors instead of they work for five medical groups across the nation. Um, the government can't control them as easy. It's, it's harder to, to violate things because there's just so many different layers in there and so many different practices. But when you have it under one system, i.e. Medicare for all, you got to breach one database. Here's a good example. It's an example I would use for, for privacy. What's the number one way where people's financial privacy is violated? What number is it linked to? The social security number. Right, yeah. So the government created this number, and because everybody has to have a number, 
then it's a way for hackers to hack into people's financial privacy because of one number. Now, imagine if if the states, like the Constitution says, are is the is you know they had a driver's license number or you know some identifying number that's not a federal government number, it would be much more difficult to hack many more people. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I think so you're... think about that for Medicare for all. Now you have some examples of where there was a huge data br- database breach on patient confidentiality. Can you share that? Yeah, I, I think it's important to note that uh, because I live overseas, I live in Panama, uh, I have kind of a global view of this. Mm-hmm. And funny thing is doctors down here, if you, if, if you had what was going on in the States with doctors down here, in privacy invasion, so to speak, they'd be in the streets striking. They go on strike. They protect their profession. Uh, they, they, they're absolutely, uh, they're pit bulls when it comes to that white coat and what it represents. So I applaud them for that. That would why be harder to do. Why do, you, why do you, I mean, America is supposedly the freest nation in the world. Why do you think that is? I think it's, I think I had a conversation with Doug Farrego, uh, who runs DPC News, and he's a former DPC doc. Well, once a DPC doc, always a DPC doc, but kind of like a Marine. <laughs> But uh, Doug said, you know, there's a bit of the Stockholm uh, effect yeah. where the doctors get into the system and they just get used to the assembly line, ka-ching, 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 and they think like that. And it's just, and, and then you have non-competes. They're lured into the system or they're forced into the system one way or the other. And it's hard to get out. And then doctors, by their very nature, are conservative. The, you know, the idea of taking a risk of, of going out on their own, direct primary care or direct specialty care, wow, that's tough. That can be, that can be mitigated, probably a lot easier than people think. But uh, I think in the U.S., that's, it's, it's been a slow motion. It hasn't right. been sudden. It's been the, the proverbial uh, put, a, put a frog in, in boiling water, they jump out and you know, bring them to a slow boil, they die, which isn't true. That's been tested, but it's a good metaphor. <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> they get out when it gets I'll have to remember high. that because I used that metaphor and I just figured it was true. <laughs> no, it's not. No, t- someone tested it. Okay. Well, you know, um, I guess the best, uh, the way I see it from my perch in Panama, as I call it, um, this is a, this is something that's not just going on. National, we, we've seen the proof in other nationalized systems. The National Health Service has had problems uh, with email breaches, patient data being sent out by emails. IRS. Uh, yeah. And then also you've got uh, two very good breach examples that happened in the same country, happened in Singapore. The first one was 14,000 plus, I think it was 14,200 HIV patients. Their their records were uh, stolen, if you will, downloaded by someone who had an access. It was allegedly an American who was involved with someone high up in the Sing Health system who had the passwords and, you know, did the Eddie Snowden with the thumb drive and stole these patient records and put them on the internet. Wow. So 14,000 plus 
uh, people had their health data stolen. Here's, what's, here's what really uh, uh, brings it home. First of all, 8,000 of them were foreign nationals. You know, medical tourism. Hello. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, and then HIV, uh, not that all HIV patients are, are homosexuals, but a certain percentage are. And sex between men in, in Singapore is still illegal. I asked a, fr a friend of mine that a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about blockchain. And so now what? You know, this is a big deal. Right. But that was, that was an inside job. And if I relate it to Medicare for all, you know, you've got 30, 330 million Americans, approximately. And you do, the average health record is probably around a thousand bucks, probably more now, but a thousand dollars on the dark web. Uh, complete health record. Do the math. Do you think a state actor would invest $100 million, even $200 million, to have 25, five to 25 people go in and, you know, and then disappear? Wow. It doesn't take much. No. So, second example, Singapore Health, Sing Health. They had a data breach. 1.5 million people had their data records stolen, hacked by a nation state. Who that is, they really weren't that specific about it, but <laughs> we know the usual, consider the usual suspects, right? Yeah. Um, and that included the prime minister's health records. His prescription drug data was hacked. And he said, well, there was nothing in that, but you know, just minor stuff. And yeah, that's true. But were they telling the truth? Was it just prescription data and a few minor data points there. Mm, let's just say I've heard whispers that that wasn't the only thing that was stolen. So uh, that is a, you know, that, that should give everyone pause for concern. What can you do with that data? And again, it reinforces, it reinforces the, 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 the horrible possibilities of of massive attacks on the U.S. And the U uh, healthcare data would be an excellent way to increase what we already have as a pretty divisive and, and uh, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt culture in the U.S. And the U.S. is something that the rest of the world looks to in terms of medical, right. in terms of medical advances, uh, I, I had this conversation not that long ago. Someone said, well, I mean, how do you know the U.S. is the most influential player in the medical field? And I said, that's a good question. I thought about that. And I thought, well, where do people go to learn the latest and greatest in, in healthcare, in medicine? And I thought, well, maybe the way to do that is to track where people go for medical conferences. And I thought, well, if I'm a, a medical conference planner, at that time when I, when, I, when I researched this, France was the number one tourist destination in the world. <clears throat> ah, well, if I'm a medical conference planner, of course, I would choose France. I would get a bigger draw, right? Well, no, France had about two or 300 medical conferences uh, in one year. Oh. UK was second with 1,500 approximately. Number one with over 8,000 was the U.S. Right. So the U.S. remains, despite 
despite us complaining about the U.S. and its healthcare system, it's, it's, it's actually the biggest problem is with payment and primary care. Primary care is catastrophic, and our business model for healthcare sucks. And then you have the privacy element. So, um, but there's a lot of good things that go on in healthcare in the United States, and we can't, we can't lose that. We can't lose sight of that. If we fix primary care, which, which if you do direct primary care is the standard of care, the standard of excellence, automatically you've, you've, increased, you've profoundly increased medical privacy and you've lowered fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You've made healthcare accessible. You've lowered the cost dramatically for care. So, uh, and here's where I think we have this conversation that uh, we need to have as a country. Maybe the thing to do is to focus on privacy first. And, and as, a, as a conversation, uh, focus on privacy and the impact and then how direct primary care is the ultimate. It, it's about as, as close to, as you can get uh, to patient privacy because then it's your doctor. Uh, and, I, and I would put it this way. Your doctor might be the, uh, the, the ultimate uh, person to know what another doctor needs to know. What does the insurance company need to know? So if I have a, if I have a problem with, uh, if I get into an accident, as an example, my doctor's name is on the emergency contact on my phone. And he's, he knows me. He, he, he's known me for years. He can tell the ER or the, the ambulance driver, okay, he's got this, this, and this. When, he gets to the, when I get to the ER, the ER doc is going to be going, so doc, what do, you, what, do you, what do I need to know about Hunter? I don't need his entire medical history. I can't read that right now. He's bleeding in front of me. Right. What do I need to know right now? And my doc would know that. I don't know it. My wife wouldn't know it. Hence, pro tip, if you're going to have an emergency contact person, it should be your physician. That's a good point. And guess what? The system up north doesn't really allow that. What are you going to get? Hello, thank you for calling Dr. Smith's office. Exactly, right? <laughs> Our normal business hours are nine to five. <laughs> I mean, it's not going to work, but direct primary care enables that. That's a so great point. It's, thank you. It's, a, it's something that you learn by going overseas. And, and this, what I've learned since 2000, essentially 2003, um, but privacy it's a, it's, it, you talk to everyone who, who lives here from every expat and you bring up privacy and they all agree. And, I, and I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little encouraging point, uh, encouraging data, if you will. First of all, direct primary care enables incredible patient privacy. Direct specialty care furthers that. <clears throat> Then you have uh, the disrupt. These are disruptors too. Uh, then you have blockchain, which you know a lot of people hear Bitcoin and Ethereum, and, and it's going through a lot of a lot of, of issues. But I had a conversation a few weeks ago with someone who was uh, uh, around blockchain when Bitcoin was about two tenths of a cent. <laughs> yeah, he's been there since the beginning, so he's an expert. And 
He told me in about three to five years, we'll have technology, uh, uh, crypto technology, blockchain technology that will uh, disrupt patient privacy. In other words, it'll bring it back to your control. You and your doctor can figure out who knows what. And that's what blockchain enables. So this is, you want a business case for blockchain, this would be a good one, but it's, it's a good three to five years out. You need, uh, you need uh, smart contracts. You need things like uh, zero knowledge proofs, which is a whole technical thing that you don't need to get into. Uh, you've heard of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that basically means that uh, it's a record that would be on the blockchain that you can't change. And it's, 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 the, it's the equivalent of like having a, a work of art, except it's a medical record. And only, the only way you can change that is with certain access codes. And uh, Bitcoin is not, is a fungible token. It's a fungible coin, meaning that if you sell a Bitcoin, it doesn't change form. It, it, it's going to be a Bitcoin. But a non-fungible token is, is a little different. So there's some really cool technology that I think ultimately will, uh, will help in privacy. Uh, but you need the right bit, bit, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum probably aren't the best platforms for that. There are other platforms that are coming uh, that, are, that are better suited towards it. But those, those three things, direct primary care, which is, should be the, the, the foundation of all American and other countries' care, because it eliminates and prevents a lot of problems. Privacy being number one. It's just you and your doc. And then you two decide who you're going to bring into the exam room. Yeah. There's no one else forcing their way in like there is now. And, and your doctor's there to help guide you. Yes, this person needs to know this. Hit this button, ultimately. Yeah, do this with your thumb. Oh, they need a different level of access? Okay, you need your left hand. Do five fingerprints. That gives them deeper access to the record. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah, that is cool. <laughs> and, then, and, and then we even got to the point, this is kind of funny. I, I said, if you want the, the, the full Monty, <laughs> all 10 fingers, right? But then what if both <laughs> hands get cut <laughs> off in an accident? Then what? Well, that's when you have your 24-word uh, recovery, 24-word uh, 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 access code, and that gives you access to the record, then you can find another way of doing it. But so there are ways that you can ensure privacy. And, and then you have uh, someone, you'll have another argument on the Medicare for all side. And even now, oh, we need, we need the social determinants of health information, Sean. Call my doctor, send a form to my doctor, they only have 600 patients or 800 patients. They can go through a checklist and say, yeah, okay, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, I have 25 patients that have handguns. I have 35 patients that have whatever. And there you go. You don't need to know who they are, but that's, there's your social determinants of health. Wow. <laughs> that's how strong direct primary care is when it comes to Superb care, patient privacy, which I think is number one. Without that, 
kiss the profession goodbye. Right. It, it'll be, it may not go away entirely, but, you know, even in East, in East Germany, the Stasi had doctors in the payroll. Yeah. Uh, really? Right. <laughs> you, gotta, you know, I mean, it, it, it begs to question are if doctors accept Medicare payment, are they in the payroll? I mean, it's a good question. It depends on how they're paid. In direct primary care, if, you know, in direct primary care, if you have a if you have a Medicare if you have a Medicare card, or a, let's just say a Visa card that happens to be tied to your health savings account, and Medicare just pays in a, a lump sum every month, then the doctor doesn't necessarily know where the money's coming from. Even now, you pay for a Visa card, they don't know where the money's coming from. Right. Right. As long as the individual patient is paying the doctor. Right. That's it. Right. That's the key. That, that, that's the key. Right. 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 You can't get yeah. a third party in the transaction, in the middle of that transaction. Exactly. There are a lot of countries, though, that don't have that level of, I mean, that was the problem with the, Medicare for all has been around for a lot longer than people think. The original idea was with uh, the concept was uh, uh, in Otto, Otto von Bismarck <laughs> came up with the idea at, or promoted that idea in Germany about 20 years after bloodletting was a thing. I think we've come a long way since then. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, right. consider what's happened since the turn of the century. You know, I, one way I put it is the, 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 medical, the, the medical ship Titanic, the old antiquated radioactive system, hit the iceberg on July 26, 2000, which is when President Clinton announced uh, uh, the first mapping of the human genome. Mm. There's personalized medicine. So now your medicine is no longer the male-female playbook. It's Sean's medicine, Hunter's medicine, my sister's medicine. Now you have gut microbiome. And a doctor's going to need more time to sort through all this. And by the way, we have proteomics coming. <laughs> and more. It's not going to stop. No. Well, that's it's going into your health record. That's yeah. I mean, I, I like the progression there, but uh, without privacy, we've got nothing. Hunter, yeah, tell us about your book available on Amazon, Expat, Expat Health Guide. Oh, well, I wrote the Expat Health Guide. I was, I've been answering questions on Facebook forums and, and groups and, and in person at, at events. And I decided, you know what, it's time for me to do a brain dump. <laughs> so the Expat Health Guide... Uh, we have a lot of Americans coming to Panama, and they have trouble navigating the system. And the other thing that freaks them out is when their doctor hands them their business card along with their, their cell phone number. Now, yeah, just contact me on WhatsApp. You know, they're like, what? <laughs> it kinda, wait, I have access? I can call you? Yeah, sure, call me. I may not be able to answer the phone right away, but I'll get back to you. That never happens up north, <laughs> or very rarely. Yeah. The system doesn't enable it, right? But they, they come from a, from a system where the first question they ask when they get down here is, I got to get my health care right. Um, I, I need good health insurance. What, where's the best health insurance? Well, you know, wait a minute. <laughs> Stop. You know, when you go buy a car, you, 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 what do you do? How do you, I mean, how do you do it? Oh, well, I go buy the car. I mean, I, I, first I look at, 
you know, the car I need, it doesn't have ABS brake, brakes, I need an SUV. Oh, you've got benchmarks in your head about what you need. Amazing. And then what do you do? Then you buy insurance for it. Yes. <laughs> That's a great point. You, I like that. How, yeah. how do you know you have a great car? The, the, the first question should be, who's a good doctor? <laughs> yeah. It, right. it, it, the, way, the way I illustrate the point is, how do you know you have a great car? Well, I have great car insurance, said no one ever. Right. That's well, a yeah. great analogy. I love it, Hunter. How, how do you know you have great health care? Uh, well, I have great health plan at work. Yeah. Right. Coverage is the key. So I wrote the expat health guide to educate people on, on what to look for. You need the benchmarks. And I use direct primary care. That's the benchmark, right? The, the attributes of access and, and privacy and, and uh, the focal point for care. Those are the things that uh, I explain in the book. So no matter where you go, this isn't Panama-centric. And I include expats to the U.S., which means Americans. <laughs> right. So um, it's, it's, it's designed to give... I wrote it so I, I can save a lot of time, my time. I just, just read the book. It's eight bucks. Right. It'll save me money. It'll save me time. <laughs> yeah, it'll make me money, but you know, it'll, you'll buy me a cup of coffee. <laughs> right. So it is, it is the brain dump of what is great care and how do you get it? Um, what do you look for? I have, I have a chapter on the personalization of medicine and also on privacy. And I cover a lot of the topics that we've spoken here uh, today. Awesome. Well, uh, Hunter, as we wind this podcast up, uh, what, what, what do you have a passion for? What do I have a passion for? Uh, well, I, I have several passions, aside from the obvious, which is you know healthcare and, and, and getting healthcare right. Uh, auto racing is one, long time. Did a little of that. I was a driving instructor uh, for our, our regional Ferrari Club of America, um, uh, our Ferrari Club of America region. So that was a lot of fun. And watches, I enjoy uh, taking apart and trying to put them back together again. <laughs> Every now and then I get it right. <laughs> it's, it's very disconcerting when you have an extra screw and you're like, oh, man, oh, this isn't going to work out well, especially with a Swiss watch. So those are just two examples. But, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, it really is a, a passion for, for getting healthcare right and helping people uh, discover the benchmarks and how do I know I have great healthcare, no matter where I am. And that's, I mean, if you can't tell from my attitude right now uh, and, and during these shows, then, uh, boy, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, your, your passion does come out. Um, Thanks. You know, when you discuss these subjects and your, your knowledge is just, uh, I love your knowledge and wisdom. And, you know, thanks for sharing that with us. Oh, well, thank you. I, 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 should, I should mention something uh, of importance to not only, not only expats, but I wrote a, an article on Travel Awaits about six things you ought to do before signing a rental agreement or buying a home as an expat. And that is uh, go visit the local ambulance. And expats, when they read that, they go, ah, oh, man, 
I have that in my book. I just, I went into detail in the article. You can put a link in the description, but that applies to vacation homes in the U.S. You buy a vacation home, you go there once, you know, once, twice a year. Have you ever gone to look at the local ambulance? Right. Now, granted in the U.S., sure, it's, it's probably right up to standard more than likely, but what about getting to your house at certain times of the year? Huh. So anyway, that article is, is, is something that uh, I think might be of interest to your audience that they never even thought of, because I know a lot of expats don't. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't have. <laughs> so thank you for that. As always, you've helped us realize our goal today of educating and empowering consumers to take charge of their own health. So thank you so much, Hunter. And listeners and viewers, tune in Monday. 12.30 to 1.30, our regularly scheduled podcast, Pacific Standard Time, we'll have Carl Schusler, kind of on the same subject, of Fair Cost Health Plan. So you don't want to miss out on that. Um, and as always, thank you, Hunter, uh, for um, you know educating us on our midweek podcast. We really appreciate it. Oh, Sean, thank you for having me back. And Carl's Carl's a great guy. I had him. Oh, of show. course, he you is, know him. <laughs> boy, if he's if he is in a live wire, I don't know what is. And I love his enthusiasm. He's a great he's a great guy. I'm excited he's to have him really on. Great work. Yeah, excited to have him on. And by the way, I have had Craig Wax on our podcast before, and I've been on his oh, yeah. video show. Yeah. So. Have, have you talked about the medic uh, his legal care for all? I don't remember. It's been a while since he's been on, but I should probably invite him on and talk about that. Yeah, he'd be good, along with Doug Frago. Doug Frago from DPC News, right? Yes, absolutely. I'll have, to, I'll have to look him up. So look, look his look at his background. All right, thank you so much, Hunter. Thanks, Sean. All right, listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you.